I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. We're talking to remarkable people who overcame adversity and trauma in their childhoods to become extraordinary adults. Our guest this week grew up on a council estate in Stockport. Her mother couldn't read or write and suffered from bipolar disorder. She became her carer to her parent at 10. She was clubbing by the age of 13, pregnant by 15, and had left school with no qualifications by 16, determined to find a job while bringing up her baby on her own. Yet Angela Rayner is now deputy leader of the Labour Party, We interviewed her first when she was Shadow Education Secretary. She told us, I still think someone's going to tap me on the back in the corridor here and say, you've put on a great show but the joke's over. Off you pop, love. I feel like I'm punching above my gene pool. Angela Rayner, thank you very much for joining us. Do you still feel like an imposter, even though you've been in the Commons for seven years? Yeah, I think um, I hope that people don't sort of look at and listen to their own hype. I certainly don't. And I think when you come from uh, a background where it's sort of implied in everything that you do, that things are done to you rather than you're somebody who can achieve things. And if you, I I don't want to say downtrodden because that's too much of a harsh word, but there's a subtlety in growing up in my sort of experience that is that know your place Mm. so it takes a lot to come out of that it's a bit like you know I talk about um you know talk about sure start and the amazingness of sure start I'm sure we'll come on to that but a lot of people think that it's just the natural thing that you cuddle your children you love your children and you know I'm sure my parents loved me but they didn't know how to show they love me so mm. I was it was implied as well that you don't get cuddles or anything so yeah. I've always been like you know to get cuddles off my children I've always had to sort of like learn it and I feel really sad about that you know I look at it now and I think gosh you know I see the natural way in which my husband can have cuddles off the kids and it's great whereas I still sort of slightly recoil and think like oh no this is good you mm. need to enjoy it um so I think it's just learnt behavior so yeah so I think I'm still at that point even in my career now where I've my learnt behaviour is, okay, this isn't really for you. Right. You're not this type of person. And, and is, that, is that more to do with being a woman or to do with your class background? I think it's a mixture Mm. I think it's a mixture and even in my class background there was like even on the council estate there was levels of superiority (laughs) you know like if you were like the big family that were you know quite good or their dad who was like well known in the community they had status you know whereas um, we didn't have any status we were like lowest even on the council estate so even within that um, I suppose it taught me structures and it taught me about people 
more importantly. Mm. So I, su- uh, I suppose that's why I've mastered politics in the way that I have, because it is about knowing about the subtleties, the unspoken. A lot of the time people think, you know, you have to go to university, learn about politics, you know, do a degree. Actually, the masters in real life that I've got has been the thing that I've used the most in all my years I've been in Parliament, because you have to be able to understand the unspoken and the subtleties of the way in which communities work and various different communities and you have to pick up on that and the chamber's the same you know Mm. but even when I was growing up the matriarch women they they were really in charge but they used to like you know I'd hear about you know next door neighbour her husband used to get drunk all the time and on a Friday he'd go to the pub and he'd get drunk and spend most of his money it was cash in hand at the time he used to get paid cash wages back in the day and she'd say when he'd come home absolutely hammered fall asleep on the sofa and then she'd take the money <laughs> and he'd think he'd spent more money than he had but she'd take the money for the kids so that she could spend a little yeah. bit more of the housekeeping you know because the men went out to work but she was really in charge and the women were but a lot of the time the men just like to be the ones that bang the drums but actually I find a lot of the time and, and in parliament in everything that we do is that women are actually finding ways to make their mark and uh, improve things they just don't have to go around willy waving because that's not what they do so do you think in a way the women have the real power in politics as well i think they do you know <laughs> harriet harman i mean she's just like she gets a you know she gets on with it and you see that you see you know people have accused carrie carrie Simons of the same you know boris johnson's part they're like oh she's interfering and i think actually you know what i think women just learn to do things differently mm. and again i think that's uh, you know when i talk about my imposter syndrome i think that women just learn that there is uh, norms in the environment that actually there's ways of getting around it. i did a guardian interview back in 2011 and i said people often underestimate me mm. and i might like, do it at your peril and i enjoy it when they do because it means that i've got an advantage mm. you know i know when i'm in a room that that person has underestimated me that's great that's perfect for me because it makes my life a bit easier when I go for the kill and I want something yeah so you know I think women are incredibly intelligent and have learned to adapt to whatever mm. their environment is in everyday life or in politics as well so they may not be as um you know they may not be a sledgehammer to crack a nut but they still crack yeah. the nut <laughs> and we want to take you back to your childhood and people sometimes say that politicians don't have enough life experience and not enough knowledge of reality but in some ways you've got too much it's really (laughs) tough yeah I often get accused of oversharing (laughs) but what's your earliest memory of your childhood oh gosh I mean some pretty horrifying ones to be honest I was um I I used to have, have really bad nightmares and night tremors and used to wet the bed and I used to get really told off my dad was very scary and very shouty and um, if I wet the bed, I got told off. Mm. And I used to be absolutely petrified. I used to hide the bed in wherever I could or try and get out of it. And if mm. I needed the loo, I was like absolutely terrified of going to the toilet and things like that. So yeah, it was. Uh, they were and probably what were the my earliest memories. Of? Um, just I used to like. I've 
images of things. I used to think there was like monsters in the room or <laughs> visions of things. And I was so, I can't even watch films now. Like, you know, critters, people who are listening to the podcast will mm. know critters. It's, people think it's a funny show. I couldn't watch it. I mm. still can't watch critters. I get really frightened. <laughs> and when I was a home help and I used to do the night shift, I remember coming out and if it was a dark night and it was windy, I used to think, right, 10 seconds to get to the car, shut the car door, <laughs> lock the car door, don't look out the window. That's kind of the OCD routine that I had to get me through like the darkness so um, I'd always been like scared of the dark so yeah I had I was absolutely petrified and I used to get told off for being so frightened and making it being silly about it and stuff and I was and I don't know I think parents I I don't know I don't think my dad meant to be so cruel but it was pretty Mm. pretty terrifying when I was younger so that was my youngest memories is always being frightened going to bed and knowing that going to bed was not a pleasant experience for me it was a it was an experience of feeling absolute fear mm. and, and then worrying there in the no morning sort of hugs and kisses and there was no affection they, they obviously must have loved you in their own way but why do you think was it because they were constantly arguing or was it pressures of money or i think it was learnt behavior it's learnt mm. behavior you know and and i look at you know my mum come from one of 12 and two of them were just given away to the christian couple down the road you know they just went a couple of days and then they never came back <laughs> so that was how it was in them days right. so withenshaw estate you know big estate poverty everywhere Mm. and it was more the emotional poverty and this is why Mm. I talk about sure start a lot and this is one of the things that because yes we didn't have money and yes you know I mean by today's standards we had a council house and we had a gyro that covered we didn't go to a food Mm. bank so by today's standards actually we we were okay because the welfare state supported us um but it was the emotional poverty and the deprivation and my mum suffered it Mm. and you can see the effects of that with my mum and she said I could only love one person at a time and that was your dad and I just think it's that learnt behaviour and she couldn't emotionally connect to Mm. us. And I think I was going the same way. So I thought being a parent was making sure your children were clean, making sure they've been fed, making sure they go to bed on time, making sure, you know, that the house is tidy. I didn't click in my head that giving positive feedback to a child I mean my mum couldn't read or write so we didn't read mm, when yeah. we were babies so mm, I yes, didn't so realise that go to bed no one I mean that you don't have a bedtime I didn't have a bedtime routine any... or anything mm, no right. I mean my bedtime routine was trying to get under the blanket mm. as quickly as possible yeah. and not think about the monsters that I thought mm. were were looking at me yeah. <laughs> so that was my bedtime routine so I think you know that's why I was such an advocate of early years and sure start because people assume and it's not just about poverty you know, people from all different walks of life grow up. And, you know, when I've spoken about the emotional deprivation that I had as a as, as a child, it's not intentional, but it's learnt behaviour. Mm. Some call it like, oh, it's the Yorkshire way or mm. whatever, you know, it's mm. the northern way. Yeah. This is how we are in the north. We're t- stiff up a lip and all that. But some some families are just not that way that they're they're given kisses and cuddles and told they're mm. loved and everything as, as a young child and I think it's so important to learn about giving that positive feedback mm. to a child and I was a, I was a like I say I was a child that stayed up all night screaming mm. petrified mm. and I was I was um, quite a hyperactive child and as well so I was probably a difficult child yeah. and therefore if you're a child that pushes boundaries which I was you tend to hear lots of negativity. Mm. So it becomes more important then to understand about being positive towards a child as well as telling them off when they're naughty. Mm. And that's what, it was oh, It was an amazing moment for me when I went to Shawstar and um, when I had Ryan and just learning about how 
it was just like a you know a, a, a real life changing moment for me learning about oh my god I have to do these mm. things and mm. it will change and, and I knew it was successful and I, got, and I got really tearful I was crying about it was when I saw my son pick his daughter up and just oh. naturally cuddled her and oh. it's like it sounds silly to say that, that but anyone mm. listening who have gone through that sort of same emotional deprivation will understand what I mean it's like they didn't ha- he didn't have to try it was so natural for him to just scoop his daughter up in his arms and mm. give her a cuddle mm. and and say all the things like i love you and you're you're amazing mm. and i thought yeah you've done that mm. you know you've broke that link yeah. and my mum could never get that with us and to, even, even to this day me and my siblings i mean we just wouldn't like be like that with yeah. each other it's just not our way so i think to break that that chain I think is the most amazing thing. Yeah. If you ask me, all the interventions, I've had some, some great interventions by the state that have got me to where I am, but that to me was the number one. Mm. Like, um, it's priceless mm. to give my son that opportunity to love unconditionally in a way that makes him feel nurtured and happy. Mm. I think, so, gosh, so that's was amazing. was your dad ever violent? He sounds like quite a frightening man. Was he, he was, violent to you or your mum? He kind of thought he was being... A good disciplinarian I would say okay. <laughs> yeah so he he probably thought he was doing the right thing mm. and you know making sure that we were well behaved but it was very scary as young mm. children it's very scary and I think again people don't realize how scary mm. they can be if you're an adult <laughs> you know it's like me now people look at me now and they're like oh she's a big bad politician she's like <laughs> deputy leader of the I go into like a college or I'll go to a women's group of teenage mums for example and, and I'll say like, I'm anti and they'll be like really nervous at the beginning and then after speaking with me for 10 minutes be like you're nothing like I thought you would be <laughs> and again it's yeah. that sort of I think sometimes people don't realise the imposing nature you know of how you could how you can be and I think my dad did what he thought was right mm. at the time but um yeah it was a very I was very frightened I remember mm. my childhood was filled full of fear mm. is that why you like making these huge Sunday roasts is that a sort of sense of family or is it because you do also like feeling that there's food in the house oh yeah I mean this is why I've got an obsession with shoes and my sister's got an obsession with handbags because we had nothing right. so it's a, it's it's like a big thing for us we never had a Sunday yeah. roast how many have you got so uh, I, I've lost count because <laughs> the beauty of being a pol- yeah the beauty of being a politician is I've got two offices and two places <laughs> where no I live so I can just shove things everywhere and it's an excuse to buy even more. Um, but my sister's the same and she's just as she's just as crazy as me when it comes to handbags and things like that. But when you have nothing mm. and you grow up with nothing, it's like Sunday dinner is really important because we never. I used to go around my mates' houses and ask them and say, "We parents let me in for Sunday dinner," you know, because that was just like so. And they hated having to going for Sunday dinner like oh I've got to eat my Sunday dinner and I'd be like can we have some because um, my mum couldn't cook either so we never had a Sunday dinner at our house and remember do you remember those beef and gravy bird's eye beef and gravy in a bag boiling a bag that was <laughs> close and the smash that was as yeah. close as we got and processed peas it was always processed peas out of a tin that was a Sunday dinner in our house so when I went round my you know around my friends houses and I had proper Sunday dinner with roasties and stuff it was like heaven it still so is now it sh- why is it shoes that you love now is that sort of a luxury or yeah frivolous wise because why? i had steel toe caps when i was young because my okay. nana bought me a pair of black steel toe caps because she said they'd last longer right. and i remember just getting absolutely bored
wallet for these horrible pair of black steel toe cap shoes and we didn't have we didn't have luxuries of shoes and things no we didn't and my mates i was always taller than my friends so they were all like a size six now it's a size eight <laughs> so i've got like really crooked feet now because i used to squeeze into <sighs> people's shoes because i used to like my friends used to have really nice stuff and and I used to say, can I can I squeeze? Can I wear that? And they'd be like, you could try them on. And I used to literally squeeze into my friends' outfits and into their shoes just so I can wear something new. Mm. And you once said your mum came home with a tin of dog food, and yeah. that's because she couldn't read or write. No, and she thought it was stewing steak. Yeah. She oh, looked she at the picture. Oh, oh, I mean, do you just feel angry that she wasn't taught to read and write? She just like even now, like if she says like someone's phone, she puts an F. And that means phone, oh, someone's yeah. phone. So should that, it should be great if we're ever in a war situation and you needed somebody to come up with some sort of Morse code. No one would <laughs> ever decipher one of my mum's messages. Um, but she, she, she just, she, she didn't go to school. She got bullied and she was looking after her siblings. So she never saw the benefit of it. And then as she got older, she just, you know, as we got older, I mean, I said my son, my son had exceeded my mum's reading age by four. So oh, even now, yeah. my you know my chil- my children were helping my mum. You yeah. know, they used to read to my mum, and they st- yeah, and we, we still help my mum, and she still gets support now. Um, she's got some great guys. I should give them a shout out if they're listening. Uh, who who go in and and help her with her shopping and help her read stuff and everything because she doesn't she she's not able to read or write, but she used to look at the pictures. Mm. So we had shaving foam once as well. That was possibly with our jelly shaving <laughs> foam and jelly instead of cream instead of cream. Yeah, oh. she thought it was cream and it was shaving foam, and we used to make. We used to uh, we used to have a laugh about. It. We had Imac as toothpaste once. Oh, <laughs> so, that smell. So, yeah, so that was that was my mum. She's just mm. like she comes out with some corkers as well. She's she's really quite entertaining, um, but she's never sort of let it hold her back. She just sort of gets on with it. She just sees it as I, that's that's me. But as a child, it must have sometimes been quite frightening. If how did the bipolar disorder manifest itself? And you were her carer really from very early. Yeah, age. I mean, uh, at a young age as a child it was I didn't know at the time but that really held us back my mum's learning deprivation really held Mm. us back and her bipolar Mm. because my mum wasn't motivated to play with us or to entertain us Uh, so we were kind of Mm. feral and mm. um, she wasn't able to read with us or anything. So we were always, we were behind. We wasn't school ready mm. is the term. So I didn't know that at the time, but that's where we ended up. So once we went into the school system, I remember walking my younger sister to primary school. You know, we walked on our own. We got ourselves mm. ready, you know, right. and I always got bullied because my hair was all a mess. My mum <laughs> never, never did my hair or anything. Like, hence why mm. my hair's always yes. immaculate yes. now. These are all like issues. That, so would yeah. she just be lying in bed while you had to yeah, get Yeah, so she wouldn't be able to get up, mm. you know, it wasn't wasn't that she was so much lazy yeah at the time i just we just thought my mum didn't really want to bother with us but when mm. we were really young it was because my mum just didn't have the motivation you know? and did you feel really embarrassed or was it more sense of just wanting to protect her the whole time i think i mean if it like i say my nana is a big big influence mm. to me because my nana worked three jobs and my nana used to sort of like look after my mum so and then when my nana got cancer that's when i became like a real carer and took on because my mum my nana was trying to convince my mum that she needed to give her loads of morphine because my nana was in all this pain i was like mum you literally this is dangerous mm. and i ended up having to put my nan in nursing care because i had a one-year-old at the time and i was struggling with work and looking after my mum with a bipolar and looking after my nana and it just got all ex- totally extreme for me and my nana said if i was a dog he'd put me down and she was so upset that i'd put her in a nursing home and she was going through so much 
uh, trauma herself and that's another reason why I'm so passionate about social care mm-hmm. and that actually people should be treated with dignity and respect and no one should die in pain on their own mm-hmm. you know I, I feel really quite strongly about that and no family should be put in that position as well because I've been a formal carer and I've been an informal carer all my life and I can tell you it's a lot easier to be a formal carer mm-hmm. looking after someone seeing a loved one of yours just degenerate in front of your eyes Mm. and go through that and go through that pain and them having to be you know ask you to do things that they never wanted to ever put on you to ask Mm. I think it's too much to Mm. ask families and I don't think we should I think we should be able to give people that support yeah I was 16 17 yeah Mm. so but I looked after my mum from about the age of 10 so you know once I got to an age where um, it, it probably even before then, but my, my memories of my mum's bipolar being so vivid to me was was um, from about the age of ten, I think. So, what was the worst moment? What was the most sort of distressing thing that you? Had I just to knew see? when my mum was going through crisis. Okay, and I what knew would when happen? she was gonna because she would, you know, she'd have a row with my dad. My dad would have done something that upset her, and it was wasn't like. Um, it would become like a really, it would be like the worst thing, like as if a world had collapsed and mm. everything had f- ended mm. for her. And she was in a total crisis and she was leaning on me more and more. Mm. And I remember thinking, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to keep her safe. Mm. And I remember being on the end of my mum's bed one night. My, my dad used to walk out and he'd be gone a couple of days or he'd stay out overnight, you know. And my mum would just sob and scream and mm. say, I don't want to be here anymore and everything else. And I'd be sat there thinking, how do I what do I do I was frightened about what to do with my mum and I remember lying on my mum's bed at the edge of the bed for the whole night like really tired my eyes stinging with tiredness and thinking don't go to sleep because if I go to sleep if something happens to my mum it would be my fault and I remember from an early age and it kind of switched and the relationship is still like that so I'm not the daughter yeah. in yeah. my mum's relationship I'm kind of like the caregiver always have been yeah. right. my mum has never really been a mum Yeah, you know she'll say she, I had to bath her I've had to get her out of bed mm. all sorts that my mum's been through yeah. and then get up and go to school the next morning and get up and go to school mm. yeah or look after you know yeah. I had Ryan when I was 16 as well yeah. and this Does was any a, teacher help you at all or anyone step in in any way not at all no in fact if anything in, in when we were growing up we saw social services and teachers and people like that as the enemy <laughs> so on our estate you wouldn't you wouldn't say anything about what was going on I mean and to be honest most of the families that I knew were either an alcoholic father or you know like recruits like as they say we we were in that pool and they Mm. were the people that we were around I mean I only sort of communicated with people who were professionals once became a home help and saw them as humans right. you know before then we we, yeah. we just didn't even do that but you wouldn't you wouldn't go to a teacher I certainly wouldn't go to a teacher and say my mum's had a really bad night where she's been you know saying she wants to kill herself it's just not it just wouldn't do it I mean mm. you just feel like your mates had laugh at you you just wouldn't you just dealt with it it was yeah. just your reality mm. and it's only as you grow up and like I say it's only even the stuff around not being loved and cared for in a way that is quite common to most people mm. that wasn't my day-to-day lifestyle so I grew up thinking that's normal mm. so the abuse the neglect the circumstances of my childhood I grew up thinking that's normal mm. and because of the estate I grew up in there wasn't you know, there wasn't examples. Of course, there was probably one or two, but certainly not ones that yeah. I saw that um, showed me that things could be different. 
It must have sounds very chaotic and quite dysfunctional as well. Do you now feel you have to have everything under control, everything in order, everything very tidy? No, you see, now the chaos has been why I've thrived so much. <laughs> because of, if you look at since 2015 in Parliament, everything's right. been chaotic yeah. and a lot yeah. of MPs have really struggled. So you're used to it. And I'm like, you know, this, the trauma, the screaming, yeah. the change, right. the unpredictability, mm. the Brexit, everything is like, yeah, this is my bread and butter. This okay. is life. Yeah. You know, this is, what I'm used to in fact I get I think it's really strange when people are nice right. <laughs> I find taking compliments more difficult than taking abuse to be honest because so you've I'm, learned not to trust people basically isn't it so it's, I've just learned yeah. that you know I don't need that I've never had that love and affection mm. so I don't I don't crave it and and that's really sad because then like I say I see how people can be fulfilled by those things mm. and I, I can't, there's just something that doesn't, and, and I don't know if that'll ever change. I, you know, I, I'm certainly, you know, I'm more open than my brother and sister about, you know, like I say, I overshare, you know, most people <laughs> say, oh my God, listen to this, like she's so, you know, um, so open about and, and honest about stuff. But I say that and I try and do it because I try and help people mm. not to make those mistakes because mm. sometimes I think it's a bit late for me because I can't be loved <laughs> because I've never been. So I, I find it difficult I find that whole like being loved and feeling nurtured and happy. I'm never content. So do you think that's why you almost wanted to have a child? Yeah, definitely. I think that, I was that looking need for love. Or? Yeah, I was looking for love and affection yeah. as a young person. I was looking for love and affection that that wasn't mm. clearly what it mm. was. And then when I when I got pregnant with Ryan, Ryan was everything. I mm. wanted I was determined yeah. to give him everything that I didn't have. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, Angela Rayner. We'll be back after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, Angela Rayner. So you are unusual at Westminster. Most politicians haven't had your background. Do you still feel that the kind of Westminster establishment patronises you? And that might come from both left and right, actually. So the sort of Corbynistas with their Che Guevara mm. t-shirts and the Jacob <laughs> Rees-Mogg lounging on the... 
benches. Yeah, and, and you know, there's a lot of politicians that are from different political parties that do have a background that's not dissimilar to mine, but they, they're too frightened to talk about mm. it. Because, like I say, I, I get told I overshare. And it's not because I want people to go, oh, poor little old Angie, or you're dead inspirational, look at what you've achieved from what you're, you've come from. It's just like, actually, a lot of my colleagues have had adversity. Some of people have spoken mm. about their adversity across the political spectrum. You'll, you'll, you'll know of that, and some of your listeners will know. Um, so I won't say I'm um, extraordinary. What's different about me is that I overshare. Because I think talking about it and mm. being a bit more human about these things and being open about it, like with mental health and other things, actually that's a way of supporting people and it's a better way of, of, of living. But um, do you think it makes people patronising towards you? Like you said once that you were seen as a bit of a trinket in your party. Almost yeah, like... there is some like that. As, uh, again, but that's not necessarily a class issue. Some people that have not faced adversity at all are just completely oblivious. Yes. Mm. And they see it as a as an ideological political point. Well, as I said, ideology never put food on my table. So whilst you, okay. you know, I was very uh, vexed about some of the stuff that people were saying about Tony Blair. I was like, well, actually, under Tony Blair, I got Shaw Start mm. Centre. I went back to education, free education. You know, we, I had a council house. I had income support. Gordon Brown did not make me go to a food bank. Mm. So I'm sorry. There may be things that we get upset about, but I'm, I, there's no way I'm going to turn around and say that that was a bad thing. That changed my life. <laughs> Do you think, in a way, Keir Starmer's a bit too smooth? Because he's always wearing his ties and his suits. And, and actually, the thing about you is you are wearing leggings or you're wearing boots. Or, yeah, me and, and, when and Keir you go, are totally different, yeah. Yeah, but it actually, it's great but you what know, you Keir's wear. Keir's background as well, this is the point, you see. So Keir's background, he, you know, his mum was very poorly when he was growing up. He didn't grow up in an affluent background or anything like that Keir went first to go to university from his family and um, he became a human rights lawyer and I think he had it like beaten out of him mm. from the system you know the system okay. does not like as a lawyer you do, you, you're not a touchy feely person yeah. are you? you you're supposed to be methodical and and look at the the practicalities and the facts and yeah, I think fit in where yeah the so Keir I think has just been like over the years he's but like you know when you see him talk about his mum or his family his little eyes light up and you can see all the amazing things that you'd want from a prime minister but when he's in the zone <laughs> he reverts back into like right this is what needs to happen and these are the ways in which I need to do it he's just been taught in a way that you know, I say my mum couldn't give cuddles. Keir's been taught in a way, as as a lawyer and other other things, you know, is that this is what you do. You you do it in this way. You don't get emotional mm. about it. You get you know practical about it. And he sees that as his role. Mm. And but he has as much passion as I do to get young people to have opportunity. He gets as angry as I do about kids not being given the food and yet at the same time billions of pounds being given over to Tory donors. He's just as angry as I am. He just does, he just, uh, you know, articulates it in a different way. But I've seen him, you know, you've seen him at the dispatch box. I loved it when Boris Johnson was going at him saying something about Northern Ireland and, you know, trying to say that, you know, you, you don't care about Northern Ireland and stuff. And Keir Starmer was like, don't you say, you, you know, I was in Northern Ireland. I was prosecuting mm. the terrorists mm. and the criminals while you were, you know, in London chatting in your, on your uh, column that you had as a journalist. So, you know, Keir got really vexed. And I'm like, go on. Yeah. <laughs> Keir, I'm, like, I'm like, yay, more of that. Kim or that kid but, but he, he is right? like that you know yeah. he does have that passion and he does have that drive to use all of his skills and 
and everything that he's learned growing up to improve people's mm. lives he just does it and he, he's just like i'm i'm like bolty and he's different you know we're just two different types of you mm. know ways so you're of doing more things. authentic in some ways about your background is that what he should be doing is just to be I, I like to drag some of that out of him. I say that. I say, oh, you should you should share a bit more. He undershares and I overshare. Mm. <laughs> Your life has been so different to Boris Johnson's though. Yes. Even, um, <laughs> even more recently, you had a your your second child was um, born very prematurely yes. and has had a really tough time. Yeah, a real fighter. Can you just tell us about that? What happened and how, how has that affected you? How have you felt about that? Yeah, well, I call him Little Ilf and I had a bit of a joke about this because he's called Charles Wilfred and obviously Boris Johnson's child's <laughs> yeah. called Wilfred so I was oh. saying, like, mine's a Little Ilf. That's <laughs> what we nicknamed him. So my, my son, Charlie, was born at 23 weeks so he weighed less than a pound. He was 455 oh grams goodness, when he was tiny. born. He was so tiny and I spent eight months in the neonatal unit and six months in intensive care with him um, and nearly lost him many times and was told that he wouldn't even be able to feed himself growing up because of the uh, damage that was done to his hemorrhages and in his brain and stuff. So we had a very, very difficult time with Charlie. Um, but he's, you know, he's 13 now and he's so amazing. He's just adorable. He's 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 doing great. He's doing really good things. He can't see very well, but he's he's doing he's doing really well. And we're incredibly proud of him. Um, so so yeah. So um, you know, it has been different. And I've never had a nanny or anyone to be able I mean mm. I've looked after my mum and things so mm. you know I've never had the luxury of yeah. being I mean I feel like I'm a bit of a charlatan because I go out to work and my husband does the lion's share of the childcare. <laughs> I feel like that's like you know like oh my god I'm not doing my job that feels like a luxury but you know Jacob Reese Morgan and others they don't yeah. they don't have the same concerns that many in a weird way Boris, I, mean, I know he is very different but there's this an element of Boris Johnson's life that's quite similar to yours and that you know he wasn't you know people weren't present in his life as a child he's got those so you must understand yeah. him in some ways he hasn't actually been very loved as a child well, that's what I was, I was saying that sometimes mm, actually there must be moments those when you see similar cross mm. like different um class gen yeah so there's some issues that are not class-based mm. you know like I say you know well, like having a mother who's a depressive class. that he had, didn't you? There must be moments when you're thinking, yeah, I can exactly. see why you're acting Yeah, and if like you're this. at boarding school, mm. that could be, you know, even worse than what a childhood mm. of poverty, but lots of love and affection mm. from your parents. So, it, you know, I, I certainly don't think um, everything is about class. Um, but, you know, if, if Boris Johnson's child is poorly and gets sent home from school, he's not petrified, worried about how is he going to mm. tell his employer that he needs yeah. a sick note or that he can't go into to work because he's got to pick his kid up mm. so this there is you know you, you know he never never ever ever has had to think i'll pay the gas i'll pay the loan man because i'll need to loan off him for christmas to pay for the kids presents but i can't pay my gas bill but they can't cut me off so therefore i'll that's that's the choice mm. i make do you understand mm. it's like these choices that it's some people gold wallpaper or yeah wallpaper. exactly yeah, yeah it's yeah. 820 pound mm. a roll wallpaper or am i going to get like the twelve thousand pound coffee table mm. um you know mm. it's not i've got uh, a mattress that's full of urine how am i going to change mm. and pay mm. for my children's mattress and do you think it makes you more self-reliant if you grow up with that, I'm definitely self-reliant. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm. I would never, that? ever, ever ask for help of anybody. Right. <laughs> like I would, like rather. I don't know. I'd rather live on the street than ask somebody to put me up. For example, I'm just very, you know. I left my home at 16. My Is dad threw me out when I was pregnant at 16, and I'd never go back. Yeah. I was like, no way will I ever, ever need anybody. Right. Yeah, I'm very. 
very much like that, yeah. So sort of pride, or is it partly that you don't want to get hurt? It's just because I, I, I never want to have to be my mum and look mm. and ask for help. Okay. And and that's really bad because I'm the, I'm the sort of person that everyone rings if you've got a problem because I'll mm, fix yes. it and mm. I will give you my last pound. Um, I am that person, mm. but I've... I would never ask, I would never want to feel weak mm. as I see it, which is not weak. Actually, asking for help is a very big strength. Mm. Um, but I know in my own head that, um, no, I would. I mean, I had. I always had, like, my Plan B fund and things like that. I've always squirreled, even when I had nothing. When I was a single mum, I, I had nothing. I literally always had something in the bank that meant that I could feed Ryan for a week, right. for example. And is that why you're so passionate about politics, do you think, that you see, I remember you saying that you'd lost half a dozen friends by the time they were 18 either to drugs yeah. or drink or it's why i'm it's, so passionate and so angry when people think that people on benefits uh, uh, it's a lifestyle choice okay. and things because the one thing i knew and i i was with jim mcmahon on his by-election in oldham and i'd visited a food bank with him um, and i had to go in the toilet and cry because i saw the nappies and i saw the baby food and i thought i never had to do that mm. Even though I went to great lengths and I had struggles and I had to have income support, I had income support every week um, for, for a few months before I started working as a home help. And I thought, you don't understand how degrading that is mm. to somebody. Mm. Like, if I had to go to a food bank to get nappies for my child, I'd, ra- I'd die inside. Mm. I would mm. die inside. And I think people don't realise or recognise that people who are in poverty who can't afford... People say, well, why have you had that many kids then? It's, it's not, you know, people's life's chances can change. People's circumstances can change. And I get really vexed by mm. people who look down or look at people mm. and say, well, you're just, you know, you're lazy or mm. you, you just, you know, you just want a free life. And I see my friends now and some of my friends, you know, and I think their life is so much harder than mine. And they've got kids and they're bringing them up and, you know, they haven't got much money and they're working. You know, one of my friends has got six kids and she's working in a local news agents and she's on the breadline. And she was in tears because one her kids wet the bed and she couldn't replace the mattress. Mm. And, and the bed stunk and I bought mattresses for the babies and she was like Angie she's just like crying and when the lockdown happened I gave her my car because they had a second car like it's only an old golf but I went round and paid the insurance and gave her the car mm. and she was like because she could get to work then and she was just literally crying her eyes at saying Angie this is the best thing ever you're like, you're like my fairy godmother but I'm like people don't realise they would just look and think oh well she's had six kids that's her problem isn't some, it sometimes you know? in the commons you come across as quite angry or even chippy is it because of that that you feel really frustrated that well, like the comment about Tory scum you had to apologise for was it that you just feel so angry that people don't understand I just think it's there but for the grace of God you're mm. alright okay so who are you to sit there and say like I, I don't I don't look up for people and think I'm better than you mm. and sometimes you know and I've had it said to me that well you know conservatism works look you worked hard mm. you worked your way up this is great look how great it can be and it's like I did not work any harder than the people I grew up with. Mm. And I'm incredibly proud of some of my friends who struggle, who are, who, I'm incredibly proud of my friend who couldn't afford to get the mattress for her kids because she works a lot harder than me. She struggles a lot harder than I do. And I think when people in positions of authority who have never had to worry when their kid comes home and their shoes and knackered and they say mum I need some new shoes and there is just no money no money and you've got that fear in your stomach that feeling of like a brick leaning on your tummy thinking what do I do 
how how am I gonna how am I gonna do this? Yeah. How am I gonna get shoes for my child? How am I gonna you know how am I gonna do this? If you've never had that feeling, then who are you to look down on those people? Mm-hmm. Who are you to say, oh well, that's your fault? And I and I find that incredibly um, frustrating because you know in there's times in my life where I needed help, but didn't ask to be born into the circumstances mm. I was born into. Mm. I didn't ask for a bipolar mother mm. who didn't know how to love me properly. I didn't ha- ask to be uh, negligent myself as a mum at the beginning. But the interventions, positive interventions that helped me be the person I am today, the taxpayers of yesterday that supported me when I needed it, this is what you achieve that's the positive message that I see in politics. That's what I want to see us as politicians doing. Not not looking down and pointing a finger at people saying, oh, it's, it's your neighbour's fault, or it's that person's fault, or it's the immigrant's fault, or it's that. Actually, no, let's talk about how we can build a society where people can achieve great things and then you know they they will pay their taxes and they'll be incredibly proud Mm. to be able to go to the shop and and buy their kids their shoes and you know and do all of those things because that's that to me is what socialism is that's to me politics is enabling people to live their best life but then if someone has a as a difficulty or a tragedy being a safety net for them that's what society mm-hmm. is you know if, if you have most people with a disability it's an acquired disability they're not born with it you know when i was home i met professors and 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 some amazing people have, have achieved amazing things in their life but as they're in their dying weeks they they don't think about the achievements they made they're vulnerable they need support, they need to get out of bed, they mm. need someone to help them feed them. Do you find that, I mean, it must do that you've got all these people with classics degrees or PPE degrees or, you know, who went to Eton, who are slightly kind of, you know, looking down on you or being condescending. It must really irritate you because you do know so much more than them in so many areas. Do you know what? It's not just about class, though, because people, I've met some very wealthy people that have had really difficult situations in their life so they may have acquired a disability or they've looked after their parents who cancer can affect Mm. everyone and everyone and it really does and I've met people from all different walks of life that it's people who look at other people who have never walked in their path Mm. who have not faced adversity suddenly going this is what I think Mm. Mm. should happen for you actually I think that's uh, you know I don't think we should judge people whether they're they're rich poor whatever you shouldn't judge people what you should do is you should support people and I think as politicians that's our job to do that I get incredibly frustrated where people think that they know better about somebody else's circumstances or their life you know I know about my life I know what happened to me that doesn't mean to say that somebody else in my circumstances had had the same experience it worked for me having a baby at 16 I took turn that into a positive and, and it was it's successful for me i certainly wouldn't advocate for others and other people have gone through a lot more trauma than i have but i just think that for me politicians really should shut up more and listen more and be <laughs> compassionate and that's what our job is to to do is to be compassionate and to build a society that's what that's what mm. i think separates us mm. and I, I i do get frustrated when people are very laissez-faire and very um, what if about some other people's lives and very dismissive about it and people were laughing you know kids I, I was that child that was on the curb that was hungry I, I always felt hungry as a child always felt hungry and it wasn't my fault I didn't ask to be in those circumstances and when we were in the debate about feeding children in school holidays and they were laughing mm. I mean it's not la- it's mm. not laughing for me and the, the debate was also about Covid and they said that you know we were making it a political issue my, my aunt had died um, five days before mm. it was like it's not a political issue people are dying 
this is life and death. Mm. So you might think it's a bit fun. To me, this is not funny. Somebody's going to suffer mm. as a result of this and therefore I don't find it funny. So mm. there's times and places for have, mm. having a laugh, but it's certainly not funny to mock mm. people who find themselves in poverty or find themselves in those circumstances. I think it's terrible. And I think it was very serious debate, and that's why I said what I said in the debate because I was very cross. I thought you, you know, you you haven't got any idea mm-hmm. about what people are going through at the moment, and that's what annoys me is when people look down on others and don't really understand. You have a responsibility. You see, as a as a member of parliament, for me, it's the best public service job. So people like if if you're one of my constituents, you go and you vote for me. You're not just voting for me for you about everything that could affect your life but you're asking me to take care of your loved ones as well it matters to me a lot so when people have put their cross next to my name I, I, I'm absolutely humbled by it so I think the least you can do is show some respect mm-hmm. so when I'm in that chamber I'm not in that chamber for me mm-hmm. I'm in that chamber for every single person that puts their trust in me to give them help them and improve their lives because a lot of the time it's not their fault mm-hmm. why they're in those circles that's the point why do you think the Labour Party's never had a female leader when the Tory party has had two? Do you think you could be that leader? You know, I've been asked that question and I think I would I would definitely say I wouldn't say no because if I said that then I'm just being lame like other people but I've never wanted to be you know, I've never had a desire or an ambition to be even deputy leader. I think it's an absolute privilege to do it. So I would see it as a duty to do it if I felt that it was the right thing to do for the party and the right thing to do for the country, then I would step up and do it. But, um, I, you know, I think what's more important is, is that we, you know, Keir Starmer is a feminist. And there's a lot of men out there that are feminists that do promote women mm. And do respect women, you know, when my first conversation with Keir, when we both were elected and bearing in mind it was in the pandemic and we were, I was recovering from COVID at the time and we were on the phone call, it was like a speed date or something, it was a bit weird. (laughs) And his first conversation with me was, Angie, you've had COVID, I've not. Boris Johnson was very, very poorly and we were concerned about that and it was a question of what happens if Boris doesn't make it Mm. because he was very poorly at the time. And then his second sort of conversation with me was, I need to put in place systems that if I get unwell, that you take over the party. Mm. Mm. So I saw it as immediately he respected my role. Okay. So he didn't see me as a woman. He saw me as the deputy leader of the Labour Party. And that is what you ask of people, Mm. is actually respect people. Mm. Um, And if you respect people and you see women as equals and for their intelligence then they will be promoted. Mm. The fact that women don't get promoted is often because people don't see that and they're very unconsciously biased about gender roles, etc. So I actually like it when people treat me as a politician or they respect me for the work that I've done. Like I say, do not underestimate me because that's at your peril. And you became a grandmother at 37, which is a now really a badge of honour you might have been nervous about being a young mum but being a grandmother oh that was lovely I loved every minute of it I mean it was a budget day and it was when uh, Hammond was Chancellor and I was trending above him on the BBC (laughs) (laughs) Grandular uh, yeah I was grandular and trending on the budget day and people were more interested in the fact that I'd become a grandma than they were about how much duty they were going to pay on their (laughs) their pint and so I thought like I'd really made it that day but uh, no I've, I've embraced being a young grandma I love every minute of 
of it. I will be devastated when I say to someone, I'm a grandma, and they say, oh, really, how old is she? Because that means that they've accepted that I'm uh, old enough to be a grandma <laughs> instead of saying, wow, really, you're a grandma. <laughs> so thinking back to your 15-year-old self, what would you say and what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? Um, I wish that I had more knowledge about healthy relationships. And that's why I was so passionate about sex and relationship education in schools. And I was working with the Conservatives on bringing that forward, that legislation. And it's one of my proudest achievements of being in Parliament was that because I think people being able to understand themselves and having healthy relationships and what healthy relationships are, not just sexual relationships, but healthy relationships per se, I think it would be incredibly knowledgeable for young people. And it would it would be a life changer for a lot of people who sit there thinking that they're the problem. Mm. And Boris Johnson once called you a lioness. Do you feel that that's your animal? Yeah, I was quite happy with that. I wasn't <laughs> offended by that at all. <laughs> and why? Because you're the one who goes out hunting. The lionesses are the ones who go out hunting for their. Cat. Yeah, I'm quite happy to do the work. Yeah, I'm quite happy to hunt, and then I get the best bits of meat. <laughs> <laughs> no. And do you still have to pinch yourself about what's happened? That you know, you only became MP fashion online and. 2015 yeah I mean I just I just think it's I think it's in I just I think it's such a privileged position that I'm in sometimes I worry that you know I don't spend as much time with my children that should I'm you know we all I've learned that it's all relative you know regardless people look at other people's lives and think oh gosh they must have it so good they must be so happy and they must feel so content actually a lot of people don't and a lot of people do have have um inadequacies or insecurities that drive them and you know I, I still have moments where I think you know am I doing that right am I am I am I doing that correctly and then I just think you know what I'm human and I've got to be honest about those things and that's why I, I overshare about it because I'm not extraordinary I'm just like every other grandma and mum or everyone else that's trying to get by and you know I think that people who suffer great adversity and still continue are the you know the best and I I do volunteering at the moment um since covid pandemic I befriend people in their own home they don't know it's me uh, but I've been doing a befriending service and support people and I think there's some great they they're like so inspirational compared to me I I escaped to my flat and were able to you know still keep busy at work other people were just like gone through so much but to them they'd feel like they weren't coping or that they weren't good and that I'm amazing and they're not and I look at them and think you really don't know how amazing you are just to be able to to do what you do and that's why that's how I look at my mum now you know for years I saw my mum as weak and and now I, I look at her and I think you're amazing to even get out of bed when you feel like that and it's trying to put yourself in other people's position and understand their point of view and then when you see that and you see the adversity that they overcome you think yeah human human race and people are are pretty cool Mm. and Sharina thank you very much for joining us thank you You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, Angela Rayner. This is a Wireless Studios production for Times Radio, produced by Ben Mitchell. To make sure that you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen back to our previous guests on the Times Radio app. We'll be back next week with another edition of Past Imperfect. Until next time, thanks for listening.
you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organizations who are there to help. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 